have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people. That part of me is gone. Working and not succeeding. All my uh, failures has left me. Uh, I just don't care. Well, if it's in me, it's in you. There are times when I, I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. I want to earn enough money I can get away from everyone. Yeah, you're ready. Hello there, welcome to another episode of Pivotal Film. My name is Tom Nolan. My name is Mario Ponzio. My name is Looking Stuff Up Ponzio. Um, this is episode 13B. 13B. Is that This me? is part two. I sound excited, and I don't know if I should sound excited, but whatever. We don't know what happened. We don't know what happened. So we're going to pretend like... Nothing happened because as of this recording, nothing has happened. I mean, COVID numbers are still on the rise, so in our lives, nothing has happened. I mean, have you seen? I mean, the COVID numbers in Connecticut, like two weeks ago, when this airs, are fucking crazy. It's back to being like terrible. Wow, four point one percent. Yeah. So it looks like I love the national the the national charts. We're going to surpass the last peak, which is always good. Each peak is higher than the peak before. It's like a really shitty roller coaster. It is. It is like a really shitty roller coaster where it's just like up and then down and then up and then down and then really far up and then you're just going to stay there for a while and then... I mean, eventually, you know. Hey, but maybe something good happened on the third and COVID got fixed. Right? 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 Let's just drink some beers. All right, so this is. I'm already ahead of you, Mario. Oh, we have not drank. Have we, we have not. Drank? We have not drank it. What? I went to. I was going to go to New England, but then the COVID thing we talked about last week, and I'm glad they're all better and blah blah blah. But um, I was like, oh, I'm just going to get a New England beer because like fuck it. And I was amazed to know that we haven't. I was looking at my phone in the liquor store like How have we not done. We this? haven't done it yet. This is. I don't know. I feel like New England has like a bunch of flagship beers. You know this what I mean? was like the beer that put them on the map. Right. So it's it's G-Bot, formerly known as Gandhi-Bot, but they've since changed it because of, you know, it's oh, been I changed know. for a while. I know what this beer tastes like. Um, I know what this beer tastes like. Yeah, we these, all know I what this... some of these beers on the weekend. Exactly. Four of these beers on it's the weekend. It's an intensely hopped W India Pale Ale. Double, double India W India Pale Ale. Double India Pale Ale <laughs> with a blend of company? three varieties of American hops. Um, it's got a robot on it. Give it a peace sign. I was going to get some equality. I only drank one of those. I'm going to be drinking two of these. Yeah, it's fine. I they're hope they're there for you to drink. Bam. Drink it. G-bop. Um, I love this beer. Mm. I haven't even taken a sip of it, but... Oh, it's good. It's like putting on a... It's got like that slight bitterness to it. Mm. Like a very slight touch of bitter. Keep that cold. Um, but then it has like a malty finish. It is... They make a double hag. 
Yeah. Have we done that in this? We've not done the double hag yet. The double hag is pretty decent, but this is the double hag for me. This is the sea hag pumped up. It is, and it's so drinkable. All their best stuff is so drinkable, even yeah. if it's even if it's a double, even if it's got some aggressive tastes in it. Doesn't taste like oil. No, you just keep going back to get it. You just keep. <laughs> it doesn't taste like oil. Although I'm going to christen you later with it. I'm going to dip my fingers in it and touch you on your head. I abandoned my. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, will, I would not abandon my beer. It also doesn't taste like uh, martinis. Or Cuddy. Or... What else? Was there martinis in this movie? She drinks only martinis. She cries into a martini. Remember that? Oh, maybe it's... Because they're drinking coupe glasses now instead of martini glasses. No, they're all in martini glasses. She drinks many martinis. How did I not notice that she's not drinking martinis during this movie? You kept uh, being worried about whether or not Bill Murray's teeth would fall out. <laughs> the movie we are talking about is the new Sofia Coppola movie, which got released on Apple Plus, which is our first foray into Apple Plus, which is a barren wasteland of a streaming service. I haven't even looked at anything. Else. Oh, the yeah. first thing that popped up was On the Rocks. I was like, well, that's the movie I'm supposed to watch. We'll get On the Rocks. Hi, Dad. Hey, kiddo. Oh my gosh, do you look beautiful. Cliff, how's your mom's hip? Good, thanks. Good. He thinks you're my girlfriend. Bryce. Been busy? Yeah. Dean's traveling with clients all the time, and I'm just the buzzkill waiting to schedule things. Just, I'm so stuck. So Dean's going away a lot, huh? On business trips? Dad. Raise your hand if that sounds fishy. He's not like you. He's a good guy, a great dad. Sure, it's nature. Males are forced to fight, to dominate, and to impregnate all females. Maybe he's just not interested in me anymore. Impossible. A woman's at her most beautiful between the ages of 35 and 39. Great, so I have many months left. Uh, Rashida Jones plays Laura. Oh, Foundation hasn't happened yet. Well, oh, the Anne Rand adaptation? No. Oh, the Fountainhead. Fucking kidding me. The Isaac no. Asimov yeah. thing? Who's doing that? I don't know. Uh, Rashida Jones plays Laura. She's married to... Uh, she's a writer. She's got a cover for a book. Ugh, she, David S. Goyer. Never mind. She hasn't written yet. Um... She is married to Dean, who is played by Marlon Wayans, who does some douchey thing in the advertising or popular culture sector, I guess. At one point in the movie, he wants a fucking medal for getting over 500,000 followers to do something. Um, Laura has reason to believe that Dean is cheating on her with Fiona, um, played by the aforementioned last week, Jessica Henwick. Um she calls her mom. She talks to her sister. Eventually, she talks to her dad, Felix, who is played by Bill Murray. Uh, he is some kind of highfalutin art dealer. He's got he's got the money. He's got so much money that he can have a driver whenever he wants. He's got a, a fix. He's obviously had a driver for Paris. years. He goes wherever he wants. He does whatever he wants. He's got no, you know. Go, no ties to anything, including his kids, it seems like. Um, As a French 76. Yeah. Which, 
Why? I don't know. I remember when they when they said have a French seventy six as a person who likes to make cocktails, I was like, why the fuck would you do that to yourself? Obviously, it's got something. It's vodka, a maraschino cherry, cranberry, and champagne. Well, and simple syrup. If you, does that sound good to you? If you does listen, that sound good? If, if, no, but if you listen to anybody else who's talked about this movie, what they talk about is that Sofia Coppola, Sofia Coppola has Coppola. become some kind of some kind of scion of cool. You know what I mean? Where she's like, what, whatever she does, like her movies are designed to just be the coolest movies. Um, she made the Bling Ring, which is not a cool movie. Yeah. Uh, she made the Beguiled, which is not a which is a movie I like, but which is not necessarily cool. She made Marie Antoinette, which is a cool movie. No, I like Marie Antoinette. I like that movie, it's a fun movie. It's a good time. Yeah, it came out at just the right time for me. Jason Bateman doesn't. Not Jason Bateman. Jason Schwartzman <laughs> does not need to play Louis. Um, that makes a lot of sense, though, in a lot of ways. Um, I don't know how much. Uh, I'm not going to do the alert. Spoiler alert, motherfuckers. Uh, Dean is not cheating on Laura, uh, but we have to watch this movie for an hour and a half to find that out officially. There's, there's some issues with that marriage, though. Yeah, is, is there? She, I mean, so Dean doesn't. Here's my thing. Dean doesn't give a fuck about her. Let like, me that's, just. That's why I found it I'm gonna. I want you to hold that thought in your mind because it's gonna be a direct relation to what I want to say about this movie, which is that. For, I love Sofia Coppola. I really like a lot of her movies. She's got a move, sure, absolutely. Virgin Suicides. But I think they, I think her movies generally feel good, and they've got a good, they've got a good presence about them. Um, I saw Spider on. Oh, uh, <laughs> I thought Lawrence was trying to escape. Maybe he turned into a spider. <laughs> um, they've got a good presence about them. They got a good feel about them. They look good. They generally sound good, even though I don't love this Phoenix score, um, because I just don't think it matches. Like, there's no that kind of electronicness that th- this movie is kind of peddling in a little bit. Um, doesn't really doesn't really work um, for me. So I was very excited for this for this movie. I, this movie though doesn't really seem to know what it wants to be about. It seems to want to be about Dean and Laura, but I think ultimately it ends up being about Laura and her dad, but the Dean and Laura thing is the crux of the whole movie. And so I think one of the problems that you were mentioning is that I think they do have a lot of problems in their marriage. And I think Laura decides to take ownership of all of them by the end of the movie, and I guess he could work less but he's trying to impress her, which she didn't know. And so once she finds out that he was just trying to impress her and she apologizes for being boring, um, then she can write, again, the book that she's already sold and has a cover, but that she has She gets written. rid of her dad's watch. She gets rid of her dad's watch. But Marlon Wayans and Rashida Jones have no chemistry at Absolutely all. None. And I think Rashida Jones is pretty good in this movie. I think she's kind I- of limited. At times. Yeah, that's so they don't let her go all the way. And they give her all... And Sofia Coppola has given her all these weird speeches, which are really reductionist to, like, females. Where she's, like, sitting in a car with women. her dad and... Uh, no, to... Yeah, sure, to women. Um, 
is she sitting in a car with her dad and she's like, oh, are all men bound to cheat? And it's just like, why are you asking that? Like, does this really what you think? Like, do you think in these terms? Do you think only in terms of like men and women and men do this? Because the whole fucking point of this movie is that your dad is doing this the whole time. Women are like this and I am the most knowledgeable person on the subject of women. And you're just like feeding right into it in a very sincere, serious way. Like she's not being ironic and she's not doing whatever. Which makes that the turn at the end of the movie when like she follows her husband to Mexico because she thinks her husband is having an affair with Fiona who I think... Turns out to be gay? I think so. I think? I think that, But I think one of the problems with this movie is that it's never, like, fully defined. So I, I, turned, I said to my wife, who also didn't, like, necessarily appreciate this movie, um, at the end of the movie, it's like, I keep waiting for, like, the twist to happen, which would be very unfortunate. But it's equally unfortunate that, like, this twist is not going to happen. Because why did I invest an hour and a half of my life into a movie where nothing much happens and she just realizes ultimately that her dad is a douchebag which she knew we we all knew he was a douchebag from the second he entered the movie and so now she just understands oh but then she goes out and she forgives him and she won't get on a boat with him like that's supposed to be the victory the thing that he pulls out of it is like the fun the way he finally understands that she's her own person that he won't she won't Leave her family that second to get, get on a fucking boat with him. On on a boat. What the fuck is this? What is this movie? I hated it. I fucking hated it. And I'm in a bad mood. But I was super psyched for this We're still, movie. We're still pre-election. By the yeah, way. I was super psyched for this movie. And I'm willing to give Sofia Coppola like, the benefit of all the benefits of all the doubts. This movie is stupid. It's a stupid movie. Laborious is the term I'd use for it. Right. But I think one of the reasons it's laborious is because it's so, like, dimless. Yeah. And it has no sense of, like, I don't know. I don't really know what the Jenny Slate character is supposed to represent. But why is she there just to date a married guy and have more feelings than she should about this married guy? Why is that good? I like Jenny Slate. I love fucking Jenny Slate. When I saw Jenny Slate was in this, when Jenny Slate first come on the screen, I was already bored. When she comes to the first, like the first time when you see her at the school, I was like, oh, good, Jenny Slate. But she's just doing a bit, and it's a tired yeah. bit, and it's a cliched bit, and it's a reductionist bit. I don't get it. Exactly. Um, this movie's devoid of any sort of charm, um, any sort of. Charisma. But don't you think it thinks it has a lot of charm and a lot of charisma? It, it, it lets kind of Bill Murray chew on, try to chew on the scenery as much as it can. As much as, his, of it, as much as his fake teeth will let him. And it never actually works. Um, that scene with him and the police officer is a pain to get through. Oh, it's like watching a Borat movie. You, you know when, the, when you watch the... Remember the scene in the Borat movie when the, he was cutting that guy's hair? Yeah. And you're just kind of like, oh my god. Cool. Like... And I, for me, that was the hardest scene to get through. That seems great. Because I was just like, oh, what's he going to do to this fucking guy? What's he going to do to this guy's hair? But I felt that way watching that Bill Murray scene. I was like, oh, this is pain. Like, this is rough. Like, what's going to happen here? And nothing happens. Nothing happens at all. He just gets off because he somehow knew this random cop's family. Or did he? I've, I've read a couple of reviews and I've they've intimated that maybe he doesn't and that he's just so knowledgeable of the world that a guy with 
a a, a New York cop with that last name probably has like family members that are named that. And the the guy offers, and it was probably a cop. You know what I mean? That he's like reading the situation, like he's a fucking sociopath. And so what's what's great about that though is like, I love when films are unable to do anything logical or reasonable or do any sort of merits of world building, and thus I, as a reviewer, have to fill in the blanks of pointless scenes that need not exist. Right. And that's a problem with this film is. This movie is 96 minutes. Like basically ends up being 89 minutes. It is too long for what's going on because it's nothing t- is It's happening. an episode of a TV show. Yeah. It is resolved in How I Met Your Mother season six. Why did we watch... Like, why did Sofia Coppola think it was okay? She doesn't need anybody's permission. She can do anything she wants. Why did you think it was a good idea to make a movie about... Like a woman who's, she thinks her husband is cheating on her. Well, you don't get it. Like, and then he's not cheating on her. But it, it, what's what's also interesting is there's never any moments that have outside the Cartier scene. There's no no moments that ever have actual tension to him that. Dean might be cheating on her. No point did I watch this movie going like he's cheating on her. Well, yeah, because, because it's like. Oh, he's scheduled a trip to France. Before she could say anything, Dean's like, oh, I'm or a trip Mexico, to Mexico. Yeah. Before she could say anything, Dean's like, I'm going to Mexico for this. And Fiona's going. Well, and then she, and then he's like, and then the way that the film is staged. And it's like, I guess it's meant to show like her insecurities and right. how like her father's feeding off those insecurities. But none of this film, like this film works if her father's such a, poignant part of her life and such like a like a potent part of her life that that he's always had this kind of influence over outside of one stupid fucking line in the beginning of the film Mm -hmm. and his continued like let's whistle thing oh that's awful if this film had kind of set up that relationship a little more to where even though like um i don't want to say it's not felix uh felix yeah yeah i don't know why i was like phoenix because they did the music for it I uh, don't know where they got them out of what hole they found Phoenix. Um, yeah. But if they had showed that Phoenix, that Felix had such like a poignant part of her life and was such like an integral part of his life, despite his misgivings, maybe this movie works. Well, I, I, but so, he's he's a nothing. He's a nothing person in her life who kind of like pops in and out right. at will. And so I get it from his perspective where the movie ultimately becomes a movie about this guy who wants... Oh, and that... I mean, I'm glad she... Uh, even she Laura calling her dad out on the reason that he like left the marriage was very satisfying because I was going to throw up if she didn't say something because I was like that's the stupidest fucking shit I've ever heard in my whole life what is this 1972 like we're having we're still making movies about this but then she did but even still this movie is not about her and her dad, even though I think it wants to be. The movie is about her and her husband. And you almost have to make Bill Murray... You almost have to add a half hour and put more relationship between her and her dad stuff in here to make her willingness to kind of just do whatever her dad says be believable on any level. Because from what I understand, her dad's not really part of her life. 
No, he's not a part of anybody's life besides himself. So when he comes into, when she calls him and then he rushes, I, I guess he rushes home like to save her. Why is she so willing to just be like, oh yeah, I'll do whatever you say. I'll believe you. Oh, am I, is this whole thing happening? Because, and that's, I, I hate these meta, these meta moments in movies that aren't designed to be meta, but feel meta at the end. Like, am I just doing all this? Did I do all this so I can see like pictures of my husband eating lunch? It's like, yeah, did we do all this so we can see pictures of your husband eating lunch or your husband like networking at an industry event or being like an unfortunate executive in a company that's full of millennials so they need to have fucking parties for every stupid bullshit thing that happens at their goddamn company? Like, did we watch a movie because that shit made you insecure? Because if that's the case... This movie needs to be about her. And the things that make her insecure can't be, oh, I'm just not spending enough time writing this book that I've already sold. It can't be about typical things about like being a mom. Because guess what? If that's your, if that's your, it's just your thesis that being a mom is hard, you fucking, excuse me, you fucking (laughs) hold on to that movie for a fucking year. Because guess what? There are, women all over this goddamn fucking country and men and everything in between that are having a way worse fucking time being a mom or a dad or anything than goddamn fucking Rashida Jones in this fucking movie. Well, no, it's interesting. I think that's an interesting point in the sense that I think actually a fundamental problem with this movie is this movie's not about anybody. No! It has no focus. Like, even though Laura and Felix play central roles and Dean, to a certain extent, play central roles, this movie doesn't have a central protagonist. It, it attempts to say Laura is, but it doesn't ever get anywhere close to kind of her mental state to do so. Yeah. Um, and in doing that, you end up just feeling so flaccid. Mm. Everything feels so flaccid. That's a good, that's actually an amazing word. Because there's, there's nothing, because this movie requires some sort of emotional connection and when there's nobody to connect to emotionally because the film doesn't give us that access, mm-hmm. you just are left not caring. You're just left with kind of like cool looking shots, which this movie has a lot of like nice little restaurant shots. It does. I mean, that it shot makes of New York look nice. You know, it makes everything in it looks great. Um, it's clean set design. Like from a technical Sofia Coppola cool standpoint, it certainly is flowing with that. Mm-hmm. Like it's flowing with that Sofia Coppola coolness and set design in articulation of of how the shots look and everything um but in terms of an actual crevice of emotional depth that you see from like virgin suicides i won't say lost in translation because i don't respond to lost in translation in the least um it's it's devoid of that it's 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 a hollow a moral experience i'm trying to find it here i was reading you know that you've done something weird when I read an Armand White review and, and take something from and it. I say I agree. Pretty good. Pretty good. Which is which is fair. And I, I was thinking about posting something about that this this week. Um My arms are getting tight in the shirt. This is excellent. <laughs> um He says this. He says it um he talks, but he's talking about um, Lost in Translation. 
And he says, it was a, a bourgeois bonanza for privileged feminists, even though it's always difficult to tell exactly how feminist Sophia is, when the oppression felt by her heroines is mostly in their heads. And I think, I think that's the key here to kind of what you're saying. It's, it has nothing to do with feminism. So Armand White is like wrong about that. Yeah. But it's, there's nothing really outward pressing on these people. It's all their own sense of self. It's a stagnant marriage, but like everything about that is self-created. But and then by the end of the, exactly, it's a stagnant. We see a stagnant marriage, but they and they perceive it themselves as stagnant. But it's a stagnation that's exists that exists not f- through any kind of realness that you can see. Like it's not like. You know, to be as a as a as an English major novel, the perspective novel writer here, there's a lot of telling and not a lot of showing here. So we don't get to see the stagnation that we see. Doesn't feel like real stagnation. You know, what I mean, this isn't scenes from a marriage. This is just like, oh, aren't we so stagnant? Yeah, we're super stagnant. Well, no, and I think that would almost have made this film a little better is if like there had been a declaration at the end of the film of like. Oh, Laura had invented a drama because of how stagnant yes. the marriage had become. Well, that's and, and he, that would have been like I would have been like, okay, good point, and, good point, Sophia. And Dean almost comments like, on that, that when a he's nice like, little like, and doesn't Dean almost comment on that at the end of the movie when he's like, oh, you could write a good detective novel, and she's like, <laughs> it's like no, but you could write a good detective novel. Like you almost made this shit up because your life was so boring, but that's not the way that it's portrayed you know what i mean it's not the like you didn't jump on board with your dad's thing because you're sick of sitting at home with your daughters all i've seen through the whole movie is that you love the fuck out of your daughters but you're just concerned that your husband is cheating on you uh, it's 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 disconnected all of the emotions are disconnected yeah, it's I, I guess i guess this covid summer with bergman and i hate to say it, ackerman um that movie fucking rules. But to a level, like, has at least a, a certainty of emotional stakes. Mm, um, yes. And, you know, whether or not it needs to be told over four hours is a point of argument <laughs> we've had. But at least those those films hew close to an emotional state that is real. Everything mm. about this film feels as though it's unaware it needs to have emotional stakes that just needs to be clever it just needs to be clever and fun and this movie like always feels like it's funness it wants to be so fun that it's afraid to be to have a real emotional attachment and i kind of felt that that is an exact i think perfect description of how i felt watching something like lost in translation where it was like it was so concerned about its aesthetics that it forgot to say, like, you should care about these people because of this reason. Yeah. Because through most of through most of Lost in Translation, I was like, I don't care what happens to either Scarlett Johansson or Bill Murray. Because neither of them seem like they have any value outside of their own brains. Like, their own value, how they value themselves is at stake. And I don't care about that. Like, it doesn't mean anything to me if... Bill Murray finds his super famousness super empty. Or if Scarlett Johansson finds her marriage empty. Because you haven't given me a reason to feel that way. You haven't shown me a reason. You've just told me that's how I should feel. 
And I think that's really, I think that's at play here. And it's a bummer because I was really looking forward to this movie. And I think a lot of people thought that Apple Plus had gotten their hands on something real here. And I just don't think they did. I think they got something on their hands on something cool. And I think it wouldn't have surprised me if it was like, oh yeah, Sofia Coppola has directed this six-part miniseries um, on Apple Plus called On the Rocks about this marriage thing. And I actually think that I would have preferred that. Because then it would have been able to go in deeper to a lot of those emotions and a lot of those feelings. And it wouldn't have hewed or cleaved so so tightly to fucking cliched garbage like, do you think men could ever be faithful? Or, you know, just typical shit about, about you know, divorce and, and uh, feelings of abandonment and all that other stuff. I mean, it's also typical. It's also cliched. Now Apple TV Plus has to rely on the Russo brothers. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's and when and the Windwalkers, that that animated film from the people who did the Secret of uh, the Book of Kells and oh, Song okay. of the Sea, which are two of my favorite animated films of all time. What so, is it? what the? Oh God! Wolfwalkers, excuse me. Yeah, Wolfwalkers. Oh God, they don't. Oh, it's rough. Apple TV Plus is rough. Oh, oh, they have a. Damien Chazelle series coming up. Good, good for you guys. Oh, jeez. Oh, they really do need to buy James Bond. Oh, they have the Velvet Underground documentary coming up. I don't see how a Velvet the Underground documentary can be interesting. The Velvet Underground is one. Of, I love the Velvet Underground. They're so boring as people. Like they must, they're going to be one hundred percent reliant on old footage of Andy Warhol to kind of carry that. Todd Haynes could make it fun. I love fucking Todd Haynes, but I think, I think he's he made a lot of mistakes in the last bunch of years. Did we ever talk about Dark Waters? Did you like Dark Waters? I think I. Uh, did I get around the Dark Waters? It was okay. It's pretty good. But I like Carol, and I'm not there. Oh, I love I'm not there. I love Todd Haynes and Carol. Yeah, Carol's okay. Wasn't great. I'm far from heaven. Little stayed. I like Far from Heaven. It has a Dennis Quaid problem. Dennis, Dennis Quaid is a Dennis. I didn't realize <laughs> Dennis, Quaid Dennis Quaid has a Dennis Quaid problem. All right. Um, anything else on the rocks? It's a movie. It is a movie. Ultimately, I think that's how I'll feel about it. But not now. Now I'm just mad. Now I wanted I wanted something transcendent to get me the fuck out of here, and I mean, it didn't take me there. So I had to go to the desert, Mario. The I had to desert. go into a fucking hole to find escapism. I don't think there's any fucking in that hole. We'll be right back. <laughs> no, there is not. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back. Uh, I'm not going to beat around the bush here because we have a lot of things to do. Um, and uh, who cares? Uh, my number 13 is a movie we've kind of been waiting I guess I've been waiting a long time to talk about it um, our buddy JP was waiting to talk about it he couldn't come tonight although I invited him um, he actually asked if this is like the highest there will be blood and I was like yeah this is the highest there will be blood <laughs> um, that movie is there will be blood ladies and gentlemen I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills and I had to see about it. Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. 
I'm a family man. I run a family business. This is my son and my partner, H.W. Plainview. You boys are a regular family business. Now, you have a great chance here. My son is a healer and a vessel for the Holy Spirit. He has a church. You will be cast up and thrust back to perdition. I'm fixed like no other company in this field. I have a string of tools ready to put to work. That's why I can guarantee to start drilling and to put up the cash to back my word. I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what the others promise to do, when it comes to the showdown, they won't be there. Unfortunately for everybody that's listening to this podcast, I'm not going to do the whole rest of this episode in Daniel Plainview voice. Um, although it occurred to me, it's such a satisfying voice. I wish I could do it um, for real, but you can't do it for real. Actually, I actually think one of the benefits of kind of... One of the things I wish I think more people should do when they study Daniel Day-Lewis as an actor is to find a way to not watch the movie, but just listen to the movie. And listen to the, the tremble, like the voice, tremble. and what it sounds like, and how it and how it works, and how it moves. Because a lot of people, I think, criticized. Maybe they didn't criticize, but I think there was a lot of people that kind of commented when There Will Be Blood first came out that it sounded a lot like the Bill the Butcher voice. Um, had a, it had a lot of the same graveliness to it. Had a lot of the same kind of affect to it. Um, but it's so different. It's so. I mean, I we have we talked about gangs in New York. I fucking hate gangs of New York. Yeah, yeah, I I like it, but I think it's um, just based around him. Right, I think he's and, great. Uh, uh, Brendan, Fra- uh, Brendan Fraser, Brendan Gleeson, yeah, and think, Brendan Fraser. Think, um, Brendan Fraser, not it? Is it? That'd be awesome. No, it's like a he's he's one of those shadow people. What's it called in in Ant Kind? You know? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. One of the unseens. What if Brendan Fraser was Leonardo DiCaprio's character? Does it work? A better movie? Is it? No, yeah, for sure. I feel like I don't want to talk about this anymore. I just want to talk about that. <laughs> um, I saw there will be uh, there will be blood two thousand seven. You know, it's kind of unimpeachable as a as a film year. Um, I was a Paul Thomas Anderson person, um, so not that I could kind of figure out what there will be blood was upon viewing of the trailer or reading about it. You were still just like, what? This is a movie? <laughs> like, what, is, what movie is this supposed to be? Um, Daniel, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis uh, was, like, introduced to me, kind of, in a, in a way, in, with the um, Gangs of New York. Um, not, I suppose not really, because I had seen, like, Last of the Mohicans, and I'd seen, like... My Left Foot? I don't know if I'd seen My Left Foot. I'd definitely seen... Um, What's the Edith Wharton movie? The, not the father. Um... Age of Innocence. Oh, right, right. I've seen Age of Innocence. Um, so I was aware of Daniel Day-Lewis, but they, the fact that Daniel Day-Lewis being in a movie was a big deal, was not a thing that was aware, uh, like known to me until Gangs of New York. And then he followed that up with this five years later, or six years, almost six years later, um, with There Will Be Blood. And I wasn't, I wasn't super into the reading the trades or like you know was there an internet that was keeping up with production stills you know what i mean like now you can go online you can see production stills from the new paul thomas anderson movie you can see bradley cooper just doing his best to ruin whatever paul thomas anderson is trying to do um i don't even know what he's doing jason clark sneaking on he's the just set. fucking there trying to trying to kill me um 
but I went to this movie because you go. I went, I go to Paul Thomas Anderson movies. I was I was a devotee at that point. Um, what was your first exposure to Paul Thomas Anderson again? Was it Boogie it was Nights? Boogie Nights yeah. in the same way that people see Boogie Nights on TV uh, on DVD with a group or a video with a group of, of guys? And I, I want to talk about Boogie Nights. And then the same thing, Magnolia on DVD, and then um, Punch Drunk Love in theaters, and I was ready. Yeah, this was my third. I didn't see Magnolia until after this. And I, I saw Magnolia when I worked at the record store, after Boogie Nights when I worked at the, that record store when the, the, uh, the special edition came out, the new line, when all those new, mm. great new lines came out. Those two discers. Oh, and they're super. In the, in the cardboard boxes. Oh, beautiful. Those are fucking beautiful. You have the seven one downstairs. Yeah. Those are beautiful fucking discs. Fight Club did one. Fight Club or? did one. Um, Boogie Nights had a pretty good one. Um, Magnolia had one. There was a bunch of them. Mary Max did a lot of those too. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful things. It's too bad that those are kind of gone now if you buy a movie on dvd it's either criterion or it's just like the movie and like nothing Maybe a else. commentary trip. yeah um but i was ready i saw it in the orange cinema saw it by myself i was one of like two people in the theater which i thought was odd really nope. i saw this in a packed theater so yeah i mean i don't know if it was because it was playing in other places and the orange showcase cinema was like i said i've said a bunch of times on this podcast it's like the hugest art house cinema in america in that it was like a multi a standard issue multiplexed made to show Star Wars movies. And then because there was another one in Milford, which was the next town over, a multiplex, the Orange Cinema ended up getting all of the art house films. So I saw Pan's Labyrinth there. I saw The Fountain there. I saw There Will Be Blood there. With I saw City of God there um, on huge fucking screens with just like a few people because nobody was going to see these movies. I couldn't. I can't say that it changed my life, because it definitely didn't change my life. But it confirmed uh, very significant things for me about myself. And you will disagree with me. I'm, my wife disagrees with me. I'm sure um, therapists have disagreed with me. Um, everyone mostly disagrees with me. One of the pivotal. I think probably the most pivotal. See, we've talked about this a little bit, doing like a pivotal, pivotal moment, like you know, running through like the all of our films and kind of like being like these are like the most pivotal moments, like taking the movie thing and like breaking it down to like the scene, the scene that I'm starting this. We started this podcast with the um, I have a competition in me. Like I see no good in people. Um, it was like the voice in my head was talking to myself. And I was like, yo, yeah, that's me. I'm not actually going to disagree with you on that. <laughs> you also think I'm a terrible person? No, it's not a terrible person thing. It is... No, it's a... I have... Most of my friends are that way. And I don't think it's a terrible... What way? In, in a, like, like, they have a slight misanthropy to them. Yeah, so... But it's... So, that's awesome. Good. It's not this. a bad thing. I love doing this podcast with you. It's not a terrible. It's it's fine. I don't necessarily see it as a misanthropy. Okay. Because I don't necessarily see it as being about anybody else. I don't think he's talking about other people. I think he's 100% talking about himself. Mm. And that 
so I've I've really I've started writing about this a lot this week, and I I I only I forgot to copy and paste stuff, and I like like my printed document didn't print out. So I was actually going to read this big long thing. I actually don't think this movie is about. I think this movie is kind of like full of misdirection, whether or not Paul Thomas Anderson kind of meant it to be or not. I think it's full of duality. There's always two of everything. There's one person. There's an antagonist and a protagonist, and they both can see each other as the opposite. Um, but there's always poles. This movie operates on poles. And I, I, I suppose always is is really just related to four people. And this is you have the Sunday brothers, Eli and Paul. Whether or not you believe that there's two of them or there's just one of them, and Eli is just fucked up in the head um, or not. Um, but you get the impression that there's two. And then there's H.W. and Henry. And there's a reason Eli and Paul are twin brothers and Henry and H.W. We don't ever get a sentence of what H.W.'s real name is. Could be Henry, but it begins with an H. Um, they're like part of the same thing. And they're always against each other. They're always against each other. Which, to me, puts this movie in a place where it's not necessarily about... Daniel's salvation like something on the outside saving Daniel from like those feelings you know what I mean or that like it's commerce versus religion or it's family versus uh, like a a Camus level like existentialism you know what I mean to the point where it's just like it's just me and like nobody else Um, it is all that duality is played against Daniel. It's all represent. It's all a personification of what is happening inside Daniel's head at any given moment, and that he understands himself to be one thing. He understands himself to be unlikable and dark, and he's an oil man. And what does an oil man mean? It's you know blackness. You know what I mean? We see it. He puts his fucking hand on it. He wrings his fucking hand over that phallus. Thing there, you know what I mean, which I love, and I don't think he means it to be like this is a phallus symbol. It's not what the, the I think the Paul Thomas. Have you listened to the Paul Thomas Anderson WTF episode? It's one of the all time great WTF episodes because him and Mark just kind of really get along, and Mark kind of talks about this movie and No Country for Old Men as like man movies. And like they're you know, about men and like big dick swinging and blah blah blah. I don't actually think it's about that at all. I think it's about not being about being a man. It's about being a person. It has nothing to do with men. But like he does, you know, when he first finds oil before a word is spoken in the movie, he you know he wipes his hand on that on that on that pin and he pulls it off and he's just blackness. You know what I mean? And that little kid, as I mentioned before, gets you know H W who becomes H W gets christened. In, in the oil and stuff like, like that. Yeah. Um, he's an oil man. And it's not necessarily about who's going to win. Because he's always going to win. And I think that's one of the genius things about this movie is there's that moment. Remember when, he's, when he baptizes Daniel? You know what I mean? And he's just like, you know, he makes him, he slaps him in the face. And he's like, I abandoned my child. And then he, I abandoned my boy. And then he does a, like that great thing. And then he gets up and everyone's like putting their hands on him. And there's, I mean, 
I used to hate Paul Dano in this movie. I've watched this movie three times in the last two weeks. I fucking love Paul Dano in this movie now. I think it's perfect. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. And I think the reason this movie works is because Daniel Day-Lewis has, like, by accident, maybe. I think I think I just think Paul Daniel Dano was too young to be able to kind of, like, like actor wrestle him. You know what I mean? Or, like, keep up with him. But his, I don't think he's also trying. I don't think he's trying either. He had like four days to prepare for the Eli role itself. Yeah, like he was originally somebody else was in that role, um, and it doesn't it feels like he was kind of like scared to do any of that. I think his face there is the knowing. He knows he lost. You know what I mean? And and and, and Daniel kind of mentions that he's like that's. He's like, that's the, that's the band you track. And I'm not sure, you don't get the impression that Eli hears him, that he, you know, he knows. But, like, that, that's the pipeline? That he wins. Like, or he got, oh, that's the pipe. that's your pipeline, or whatever yeah. he says. You know what I mean? He, he knows he did it. He's not saved. There was never any chance that Daniel gets fucking saved. I None. like all faves. Right. Um, he's a straight shooter. He does. He doesn't mind him. Um, he's got no problem with them. Yeah. As long as they don't interfere with him, he's got no problem with them. There's a telling face on Eli that he knows he lost, but he doesn't understand why he lost. Because I don't think he hears him say about the pipeline. He just knows that this guy is a bad guy, but when he gets up off his knees after doing all the stuff and being like bathed in the, in the water of, of Christ, that people love him. And in a way that they're never going to love they're never going to love Eli. They're never going to love the preacher. They're going to love this guy in this in this very specific way. And it doesn't matter to him. There's no salvation for Daniel. It's not about salvation. It's about disappearing. It's about going away. So when he says in that at the end of that speech that which I played is that he wants to make enough money that he can get away from everyone. It's not so that he can like go live in a in, in his castle. And like, just drink and shoot stuff with a gun. Although that's kind of how it's portrayed. Um, the I'm finished at the end of the line, at the end of the scene, and we'll go into all that stuff. I think has nothing to do with like murder. Has nothing to do with like being finished with Eli. Has nothing to do with like dominating the oil market or something like that. It's about like he's done. He's not even a person. He's disappeared off the face of the earth, even if, like, we can see him and he's talking and he'll get up and he'll eat another steak with his hands or whatever. But in his mind, he's just gone. His son is no longer a part of his life. He's become a competitor. A competitor. Um, Which means he's not his son anymore. He's a bastard in a basket, you know what I mean? He's got nothing. He's just fucking destroyed the one attachment he has to any kind of emotional context that he might still exist in. So it's about emotion versus nothingness. And it's not about other people. It's not about how he sees the world. It's all about how he sees himself. And when I watched this movie, I was like, well, yeah, that's me. I'm. I, that's me to times a million I'm a terrible person I want to disappear I want to get away from all emotional like all emotional things all attachments all everything uh how do I do that 
Let's, I mean, as far as I was concerned, the answer was C. There will be blood as many times as humanly as humanly possible. And they get married the next year. Well, that's the thing. So, but that's <laughs> I my getting married. I think is or having a family. I don't disbelieve any of those things about myself. I still see myself as a bad person. Like I don't really like. I don't. The experience of being myself is not like a fun one. I get. I think the same level of intense existential joy from being part of a family that he did from like HW. I'm not saying that I defined my marriage. If my wife is listening to this, which I know she isn't, or my my dad, who I think does listen to this podcast. I'm not saying that like I'm that I'm necessarily that I'm like aiming for that person. I'm not going to like brain you with a bowling pin later. Or whoever I find my existential rival is. Um but I've, me and my wife are having this conversation this week. I'm just, I don't perceive myself to be, like, decent or valuable or, like, a part of civilization or a part of society. I actually hate being a part of society. It's one of the things I like least about having, a, having kids is that it, like, forces you to be part of existence outside of, like, this very narrow sphere that you can kind of create for mm. yourself. Um even if some of those people are great people and nice people and like inspiring people or whatever, it's just you have to you have to give of yourself. And I think what I took away from this movie upon first seeing, and I still take away from it now, maybe even more so, is that like there is nothing left for Daniel to give anybody. And I think when he says to Henry, like, I can't do this on my own anymore, at the end of that kind of at the end of that scene, it is I'm running out of self to offer to these people for sale of their land. I'm, or even I'm running out of self to give to this industry, to the land. To, I'm running out of self to give outward. I need somebody else there to that doesn't have this kind of limit on like pieces of themselves. That, that when they do business, they're not like, they're not chopping off pieces. Like, so when, you know, he meets with those, um, you know, he meets with those people after, um, before he goes on, like, so there's two great fucking sequences in this movie. And there's, you know, when the Derek explodes, when it catches the air pocket and then it lights on fire. Fucking amazing. It really fucks with the no country for old men. In, in, shooting. Incomparable. I mean, it, it is on a number of levels. And I suppose we could talk about it. Um, and then there's the great scene where they survey, when they put the stakes in. You know what I mean? And so the scene right before that, that kind of inspires him to kind of go on that mission of the pipeline. The guy was like, you know, let us buy all your stuff and hang out with your son. And then he, you know, he freaks the fuck out. And he's like, don't tell me how to, like, you know, to raise my kid or, you know, all that other stuff. It's all, it's all, he's not, for them, it's just business. It's never been business for Dank Plainview. It never has once been business for him. From mining a fucking hole for silver in the middle of like the desert with nobody around and then falling in that hole and then dragging himself, you know, to sell that silver um, to the end of the movie. It's never been about like business. It's always been something way, 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 way deeper. Um, and so the, the second thing I've always pulled out of this movie is that everything is always deeper. 
I mean, I think feel like we've had conversations about the subconscious. I have conversations about my wife about the subconscious, although I try to have them less because I feel like I don't win those arguments as much when I when I try to interpret her subconscious. Um, I I cling to the subconscious, and I just I I live by the idea that like there's always something deeper. So like whatever the deepest depths you can you can get to are there's like always something underneath that that is motivating you and dictating your choices and your feelings and everything and that's that is like there will be blood to so we'll talk about 12 next week after this airs I see my 12 as like a renewal of that or in my attachment to 12 is a kind of attempt to like climb out of that hole you know what I mean and by climbing out of that hole it's not it's like clinging to everything and you'll see you'll see it I think when we get there but I know that we have disagreed on there will be blood many times I am curious you've talked about kind of having like a different feeling from this most recent viewing and I'm curious to know like where that comes like what that is and, and, and where it comes from and like how you're responding to it now and like if there's a reason you're responding to it differently now than there was like back in the day. No, I, I think I think originally I found it kind of to be a little bit of a stagnant movie, as it were. Um something that's incredibly clean in its presentation and everything about it is so heavily controlled, but that felt so devoid of actual intent outside of some sort of like narrow view of I don't want to say mis- like a misanthropic view but so narrowly focused in one particular lane and now like rewatching it I kind of give this this view of just this like really kind of you know I originally saw it as just like the misanthrope winning over everybody mm-hmm. you know um, I saw it more as like a Bush era indictment of mm. kind of like the no, not so much Bush, but like of that that kind of Cheney mindset. Mm. Like I always kind of read this as to be kind of a response to like the Halliburton and everything. Hmm. I read that's how I always saw this film was just like a man so determined who could facilitate the world around him to fit his thing and convince everyone around him, kill those who not kill, but like to destroy those around him who did not fit that view kill in the mm-hmm. sense of henry um or discard it in the sense of hw um i narrowly saw it as that but now reviewing it it's it i i see it more as just kind of a really i say flawed man but a, a very tortured individual who you know has never had the ability to make any sort of connection with the world around him mm-hmm whether that is a real sort of loss of connection where that's learned or whether that's just by happenstance. Mm-hmm. And that, that makes it a, because of the fact that I viewed the Paul Thomas Anderson filmography around it and everything about mm. that is more of a humanistic angle. Like all of his films are based in some sort of blunt humanism. Um, well, and this is the, this is the pivot point for the, Paul Thomas Anderson filmography. Yeah. Where his movies are one thing to hear, and then after There Will Be Blood, 
they become something else, even though inherent vice. I was going to say like attempts, inherent vice. <laughs> so we're going to do like in a, we're going to take a break from the list for a week, in a couple weeks, or a month or two months or however whatever how long it takes us, and we're going to do inherent vice and heartache, because those will be ultimately the only two movies, Paul Thomas Anderson movies that we haven't covered on this podcast. Oh, because I count, I only count account for one of those films. Fine. <laughs> um, it works. It works. Yeah. So no, no. Now, now I see it more from the humanistic angle. It works. The humanist angle. It, it, it works a lot more, and especially when you see it has. When I previously tried to see it, I, I tried to see H.W. has also a pivotal character in this. I saw Eli has a pivotal character in this, as people who you could see pivot points from. But when you take that away and just see it as Daniel Plainview's film solely, mm-hmm. the first words you can really see in this film are Daniel Plainview, you know, when he's yeah. in the silver thing. Like, that's the first any sort of English that is really prominent is his name. And that in itself is a stylistic choice to kind of show you that this is his feature. You know, then the things work. And I think I think to your point, like what you're saying makes sense. Like, um, I know I viscerally responds to, to the I have a competition in me because I am the total opposite of that. You know, I am I am somebody who is super optimistic and super wants to be a part of society and often has trouble dealing with the fact that there are agents and that I have people around me. I have like a lot of my closest friends are people who struggle like you and and others um, who struggle with the fact that they naturally don't like participating in society, Uh that they naturally think the world around them doesn't fit, doesn't make, doesn't make sense. Mm and I, and tell me, or that they don't off. make sense in that. Oh yeah, world. yeah, yeah. yeah. And cut, cut me off if I'm wrong here. And I, I think some of my other friends are more like the world around them doesn't make sense, and they're right. Um, and other people are wrong. I think you are the op- you're you're not that. I just feel like I don't fit. And like, there's a, a million contexts, and I keep putting myself in these in these different scenarios. Like with going to school, like in my third, like going back to college in my thirties, yeah. Where like you inherently, and even if there's older people than you, or there's a majority of older people than you, or whatever, like you inherently don't fit. And like I don't know if Chris Gardner is still listening to this podcast, um, and I haven't heard from Chris in a while, but like Chris is much younger than me, but I feel like we're on the same level in terms of like interests and like thoughts about the world and all this other stuff. But I've just never trusted that, like, feeling. I've never trusted that kind of, um, that attachment to, like, another person. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like my relationship to you and to JP are kind of beyond, like, thinking about. You know what I mean? We're just friends, and that's just kind of how it is. Yeah. Um, and even to, like, some of the other joiner inners guys. Like, dep- regardless of how they feel about one thing or another, and let's really not talk about it um i'm just kind of i'm just kind of attached to to them for like very like viscerally like primal reasons and it's music for that like we just get each other musically um 
but I think other than that, like I just feel like an I like persistently feel like an outsider on every level. Well, and that's that's interesting because like, like I respond to that in just the that scene in the complete opposite way, in the sense of I see that sequence and I'm like, oh, I'm not that at all. Mm. Like I see myself as like somebody who really wants to interact with the world and the things in the world that don't make sense are aberrations mm. of the world. And I'm like, oh, like I respond externally to the people around me, see how they respond to me positively and go like, oh, that's probably the right way things yeah. are. And then I look at that, ex- that things that don't fit and go like, oh, it's probably because of the fact that the world in itself has shitty things going on well so that's the thing so when i see it when i when people react positively to me i'm just always like what's the matter with them like that's what's there's got to be or i just don't trust it or i find a way to like you know kind of push that shit away but i think the most recent i mean the most pivotal scene for me so i like talk about the pivotal scene like that's a conversation it's all-time pivotal for the most recent viewing like the way i kind of get there is so you have all that stuff do you have all these kind of ancillary scenes leading up to the empty train track scene right before he goes to the Sunday ranch mm-hmm. before the car. So you, it's a, it's a flat barren desert with a train in it, train track. And then him and Eli come or him and HW come driving up in a car. And it's just this barren wasteland of feeling. I feel like. And then there's these just two guys and it's everything's like it's propulsive from that moment. You know what I mean? And then he has that conversation with HW about like what they're going to do. And he does all the things that he says he was going to do. You know what I mean? He's going to offer them like a small amount of money. He's going to make a deal with Union Oil. He's going to build a pipeline. It's It all comes to fruition. There should be joy inherent in being correct. And being the one guy who, like, perceived the value of this land. Which carries on right to, like, drainage. And I drink your milkshake and stuff like that. But there's no joy because it doesn't matter. Because he fucking knows how how the earth works. But see, the way I see that is the joy in it is in it being shared. That knowledge being shared. Like, he shares it with HW. HW. And the moment he does away with that connection because he allows himself to be victimized by Henry, like the, the fake Henry, mm-hmm. and you know does away with his relationship with the one uniting factor he has to this world, that's when it becomes meaningless. Mm-hmm. And then he becomes so stuck in his ways of like, well, I've done it. I need to kind of stew in it. I, I deserve to be punished for it. Mm-hmm. Like, look, rewatch this. I don't see Daniel Playview so much as a villain as i do as a victim of his own prison sure because yeah because i think if he had just stuck with hw and everything you know like he's like the second you know obviously after hw loses his his hearing his hearing and he goes and then him and kieran hines are kind of sitting there looking at the fire and he's like you know how's h is hw going to be all right no No, he is not no he isn't is he okay no No, he he isn't yet you know um, oh, it's so fucking intense. But he, like, like he would have had satisfaction in everything because he has one 
I feel as though he has that one connection. And he denies himself that. Well, he's, man, yeah, he's got to push it away. Torturing yeah, himself. Yeah, he's got to push it away. Yeah, absolutely. Because he feels like he has to punish himself. Yep. And so the thing, H, what else is H.W. going to do? By the time you get to the end of the movie, what else is H.W. going to do? He's he's grown up as a, the son of an oil man. So he's going to start his own... Going to bang his com- yeah. blonde Christian wife. He's going to start his own company in Mexico. He's going to become a competitor. Um, and that's the exact way that he wanted it. You know what I mean? Like, the years between when... Between, like, when we last see H.W. as a kid and when we see H.W. as an adult getting married, I don't even know. We have no concept of what those were like, except for that fact that he has amassed enough wealth that he can totally separate himself from existence. The only thing keeping him, the only thing keeping him to existence is H.W. until Eli shows back up. And then the only thing keeping him from non-existence is Eli... And he fucking dispatches with Eli. Um, I'm not going to club anyone to death with a bowling pin. But I understand the impulse. If you need to. <laughs> I understand oh, yeah. the impulse to pull away. No, I'm not going to because after we finish this, I'm going to go order a chicken sandwich. Which is going to taste like heaven when I eat it. <laughs> um, I understand the impulse to want to do something like that. And... With that, let's talk about the movie. Oh, right. We should do that. This is my first introduction. I think, is this Johnny Greenwood's first score? I don't know. I don't know why I didn't look it up. It literally just occurred to me to check whether or not this is Johnny Greenwood's first score. Uh, keep talk- uh, yeah, I would assume so. Yeah, I think yeah. it is. Body song is just an album, yep. and he was famously not eligible for an Oscar because there was too yeah, he's much. O- I mean, he's only done uh, the scores to. I mean, so there will be blood, Norwegian Wood, Master, and Heron Vice, Phantom Thread, and you were never really here. And which is amazing, which is an amazing run of movies. I mean, and we could do a whole separate episode about Johnny Greenwood scores and this thing. I haven't heard the score to Norwegian Wood yet. This movie, the score in this movie is um, iconic, is uh, amazing. It is derivative of a bunch of different scores. So like there's a lot of Kubrick stuff. So we'll talk, I want to talk about Kubrick a little bit. There's a lot of Kubrickian things well, happening in this I movie, and that opening the score was found ineligible, right, for the Oscar because right. of because the Radiohead he, and Kubrick stuff. He had used too much of other, like, sampled things. Yeah. That opening, that opening atonal sound, that kind of like fade in, that that reaching up to go get that note is totally Kubrickian. The but, picture cascades in the fact when you see how far he has to crawl. Yeah. The genius of this fucking score, though, is the way in which, not necessarily the score, which is great, but the way in which Paul Thomas Anderson and his uh, the, the, the sound editors on this movie use the score. So I'm thinking of this, I'm thinking of the, the Derek scene. The air pocket, the explosion, the, the fire. Ga- yeah, the gas, the gas fire. It starts as very percussive, very obvious what it is. It's drums. You can hear it as drums. You hear the cymbals. You can hear the drums. You can hear the snares. You can hear everything. 
the longer the scene goes on, it becomes this kind of like crushing. By the end of the scene, there's no more percussion left. It's just, it's just strings and nothing and keyboards and nothing. And you didn't even really notice that it was happening. And it's the same thing when um, the team, when his, his crew arrives and there's that unbelievably beautiful shots by Robert Ellswit, composed by Robert Ellswit, of that purpley bruised sky when Daniel gives that speech for the second time, you know, I mean, about being an oil man and a family yeah. man to like the people of that, of, of that area. And this crew arrives on this train. It's just that, that, yeah, little Boston, right? That piano, that piano score, like theme that kind of is going. It goes. It just fucking goes through multiple scenes in different kind of iterations of itself, and you don't even really kind of sense that it's happening. But it's, it's, it's providing this, um, this depth that. Even like a, a film that is shot with as much depth as it is, like it, this adds like a like layers that you kind of didn't even really anticipate, and you can't even really appreciate unless you watch it a whole bunch of times. Which is not to say that like someone who's seen this movie is better, like a bunch of times better than someone had that's seen this movie one time. It's not the case. They are. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the more you watch this movie, the more you kind of get out of it. Because these little nuances of sound design and and the way that the movie is, uh, the way the movie moves and the way that it operates, I think is a lot different than some of the other Paul Thomas Anderson movies. So I think this movie, like we said, is a pivot point for Paul Thomas Anderson. I think it's the movie where, so all Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson movies have at least one uh, heavily edited sequence. You know what I mean? Where it's like a it's like a music thing. Mm. So in Boogie Nights, there's one right. It's like the '80s, the '80s scene when it kind of jumps from person to person to person. Kind of, right. Maybe it has two because it has the ending thing. There it does it at the end too. To God only knows. Um, Magnolia has it a little bit, but it's slower. It's a, it's a little bit slower. Those those scenes are a little more drawn out. Um, Punch Drunk Glove doesn't really have it because the movie doesn't really necessitate something like that happening never reaches that level yeah and I think I think all the movies after that don't really reach that level I, although Inherit Vice yeah go ahead can I say my issue with this film yeah yeah from yeah from a cinematography standpoint it's so and I, and I had this issue when I saw it in theaters and it was the issue I had when Robert Ellswit won the Oscar it's so washed out mm. except in darkness mm. Like, in its darkest moments, like, when he's, you know, holds the gun to Henry's head, or when he's kind of found by William Bund- Bandy, Bundy, the the, the, yeah. the yeah, commander yeah. that's holding out, like, in yep. the early morning after he's buried Henry. Yep. You know, like, those colors are vibrant, and everything has kind of, like, a real field of depth. But, like, for example, that scene, like, that you're, you're ascribing when he's, you know, driving down that desert road next with... HW next to the railroad track, everything's so like washed out and doesn't like pop, and nothing in the like I've noticed this. Like even rewatching the Derek scene when the Derek's burning, it doesn't. Besides the fire, 
Oh, I love ever, that scene, but though. Like, I love it, too, and I love how I mean, it's I mean, framed. Like, but I, I love I, how it's framed, but, like, none of the colors in this movie pop. And I don't know if that was the intent. I don't know if the intent was kind of to get this kind of, like, oil grayness, Upton Sinclairis, like... I mean, because obviously it's not based too much on oil, but like right. this this kind of like muddiness to it. Because especially since like a big pivot point of the idea of this film is like life is either oil or life is mud. Mm-hmm. Like that's, you mm-hmm. know, like everything else is mud. This is like a line early on. But it is muddy. And I don't know if that's intentional, but like it's not rewatching it. And I, sorry guys, I don't have a 4K TV, so I want this on like 1080. But like. I, I don't have 4K so, TV either. It's so washed out. Yeah, I think... And I, I don't know the, if that's intentional, but I just don't like like it. Yeah, the washed out quality is an interesting one. And washed out is a good, an interesting way to frame it. I think it... I've always kind of responded to the, the cinematography in that it just seems so spare. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think it's... Remember in... I don't know if you remember this. In Coraline... Where Coraline goes into like the other, she goes through the door and then she decides that she's gonna walk away from like the other mother and she just kind of walks and at some point like the scenery just kind of dissipates mm-hmm. and it just becomes That's a great... it just becomes whiteness. Yeah, there's an element I think here of that. It's in the reverse, I think, in the sense that the movie essentially starts. So there's all the intro scenes and you know there's like the three hills and there's. You know him mining, and there's him talking the first time, and there's Paul F. Tompkins. Um, who was, yeah, I don't think the the washing out happens until he gets to Little Boston. So he gets to Little Boston. There's that, like I said, the train tracks. Then there's the driving, and then there's just a couple of there's a couple of houses. It almost reminds me of like a reverse Coraline, and that obviously they're not influenced by each other. I think that's you know one of the problems with film criticism nowadays like if you mention one thing it's like it's influenced by it it clearly can't be because it came after it but it just reminds me no, of that no Coraline was influenced by there will be blood oh, Henry actually, Silic actually, was just so I'm into gonna be honest with you, it might have been um, it's almost like a reverse of that sensation where it's nothing and then things start dotting you know what I mean? But and I, then I things think the come only, into more focus. So the only things that ever come into focus for me in this in, in the color could do, yeah. are the new wood of the Derek. Yep. And the faces. Yep. The, the faces. faces. Yeah. The faces are amazing. Like like there are Eli a... at the table, caked in mud. Yep. Like the dry mud as he's talking to Abel. You know, and that scene's like just perfect. It's great. That's a perfect scene. That's like probably on this rewatch, my favorite scene in this movie now is I don't know why, but just like it's it's so perfectly edited yep. and so perfectly intense and it's great. And, and I agree and, with in you. terms of your expectations from Daniel Day Lewis, it was kind know, of a revelation yeah, upon rewatching. Yeah, you're watching that going like, oh wow, there's other things going on here, like just the emasculation of father to son, and how like you get to actually see when Paul Dano is willing to take control of a scene that he fucking takes control of a scene. Yep. But like the shot of like the caked on dirt and you could see the lines, like then you can see the faces and like There's that's where there. like the 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 um the Ellswit like shots come out. But like every scenery shot as it were. I definitely don't think Robert Ellswit got the Oscar for this reason. But if you listen to if you listen to the movie 
and you don't watch it, you listen to it, and you listen to the kind of what's happening to Daniel Day Lewis's Daniel Plainview voice when he's delivering these lines, and then you watch the movie, you can almost hear the the lines that he's capturing in his face correspond perfectly to like the timber of his voice at any given moment. It's un, it's kind of unbelievable. Mm. But I think it's to the point where let's talk about Kubrick Mario. The other reason this is a pivotal film for me is I recognized upon first watch, upon first moment that one of the the key influences of the last scene, which has been much maligned and, you know, memed and stuff, even before there were memes, the I drink your milkshake. Yeah. That whole scene is Kubrick. Why is it Kubrick? What is the thing that I pulled from it that I said that's Kubrick? Because he is never at any point shooting the actors. That whole scene, he is only only ever shooting the light. Do you ever notice how Kubrick tends to aim his camera directly at lights? And there's actors doing shit in the lights, mm. but they're always aimed at the light. That scene is framed by the center light in the in the shot. And it it blew my fucking mind as like a budding Kubrick person who had just recently bought a whole bunch of, uh, you know, got my complete Stanley Kubrick collection and bought a book about Kubrick and like was all into Kubrick and Kubrick, Kubrick, Kubrick. This guy was doing Kubrick. And I couldn't, it, it was just kind of unbelievable. It was, I, I, it was hard to process. It was hard to process knowing that this movie came from another movie. Or this movie was influenced by another movie. And I'm curious to know... the. I'm, maybe you don't know it because I didn't ask you to think about it beforehand. And maybe I should have. Maybe I should have texted you and been like, here's some homework. You fuck. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. The moment you realize that movies influence other movies. Like, do you have like a sense of that? Or like the movie that kind of was like, what the like not, fuck? Like not in a, in a comedic way, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or... Because, like, National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon and all that. Sure, 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 sure. Oh. Because for me, again, it wasn't until 2007 that I was like, oh, my God. Like, in watching it, I could say to myself, this is Kubrick. I keep I keep going back to comedies, but we can't use comedies. You could use comedies. Well, like, you know, all the stuff from, like, Hot Shots and whatnot. Like, what? Are those the same directors, though? Are they different directors? No, but like Hot Shots imitating stuff from... Oh, I see what you mean. Um, Right, not that stuff, but more like, you know, did you... When did you see first see Hitchcock in a movie? Even if it's pre-Hitchcock. Like, when you were just like, holy shit. I mean, like, 1999, like, I'm sure I saw it before this, but What Lies Beneath, Mm -hmm. when he looks back in... The Zemeckis looks back, like they or they look back, and I was like, "Oh, that's a Hitchcock shot." Yeah, um, I was also like, "That's a Tales from the Crypt shot." And it turns out, perfect. It that's was the same, but it was also 
a Robert Zemeckis previously directed episode that I was of Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. Nice, but still, but that I mean, that's so like I guess what lies beneath is the first thing that pops in my head. Um, right, I'm not asking you to like list a definitive moment. The earliest thing I can think of is is what lies beneath. Right, which being are, a Hitchcock sort of homage. Perfect, and you and it's one of those things as like a budding film, you know, cinephile. That hurt. That felt bad to say. Kino. A kinophile. Oh, Jesus. Um, yeah, you don't say cinephile anymore. That's so passe. It's... Kino now. Why? I don't know. I just vomited in my mouth 17 times. <laughs> Is it spelled with a Q? I wish. It's, it's a K, actually. Kinophile. Um, yeah, that's a big deal. And it was a big deal for me then. It's kind of a big deal for me now. And I kind of can't stop. I don't. I can't think, not think about that when I watch this. The end of this movie is how Kubrickian it is. Um, and Kubrick is obviously a big deal for for both of us. I mean, we could do the same thing that we're going to do for Paul Thomas Anderson. I think the Paul Thomas Anderson movies we're going to do are more interesting than the Kubrick movies that we left off our list. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to talk about some of the movies on Kubrick's that we left off our list. I mean, it would just be like The Killing and Spartacus and. Right? The one I also really hate. Barry Lyndon? You don't want to talk about Barry Lyndon? I fucking hate You don't Lyndon. want to talk about just pushing out? I hate Barry The Lyndon, great though. pushing out movie? I love Barry. <laughs> Barry Lyndon's great. I mean, Barry Lyndon's also like, has Ryan Reynolds in it. Ryan Reynolds? Ryan O'Neill. <laughs> Which is the same guy. Yeah, Imagine remaking Barry Lyndon with Ryan Reynolds. I bet... How much do you want to bet Stanley Kubrick puts Ryan Reynolds in a movie if he's alive right now? Oh, for sure. 100%. It's just like the same odds that like Terrence Malick puts Ben Affleck in a movie. And he did it. He totally did it. He did. And it's not the worst movie ever. But that's it. I always forget how interesting and weird 2007 was as a year. Oh, it's so good. For the Oscars. So good. But also terrible. Tommy Lee Jones getting nominated. Sweeney Todd getting a bunch of nominations. He got a bunch. Got like three or so. It got more than zero. <laughs> Mario. That's fair. Um, no, the thing I always loved is I think A.O. Scott, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Was it A.O. Scott? Oh, God, who was it? Um, yeah, A.O. Scott putting There Will Be Blood third on his best of list. Behind? Tied. Oh. With Sweeney Todd. Oh, oh no. That's terrible. I mean, I, I mean, I get There Will Be Blood thing. There was, a, there was a backlash, I think, a little bit. I mean, it's clearly the second best of the Best Picture nominees, but... I think it's the first, but... We're going to talk about that. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about... But I think it was one of those years... Spoilers, we're going to talk about No Country for Old Men again. It was one of those years where the third best movie on that list... Michael Clayton was nominated, right? For Best Picture? Yeah. Michael Clayton was fucking great. I love Michael Clayton. Michael yeah. Clayton was a movie that but was they, almost on my list. They also left off a movie that should have been nominated for Best Picture that got nominated for Best Director. Which was... Diving Bone and Butterfly. Right, Exactly. So it's one of those weirdly problematic years. Eastern Promises is nominated that year. Savages is from that year. Right. 
it's where there's like a ton of good movies. So Mario, I, I, I let's finish There Will Be Blood. Anything else with There Will Be Blood? I'm done with There Will Be Blood. Johnny Greenwood's great. Everything's great. No, I, like, just great. just rewatching it. Surf's Up got nominated for Best Animated Feature that year. Don't know why that happened. It should have just been Persepolis and Ratatouille. It's yeah. just been like, these two movies are nominated. Surf's Up is not. There's literally no other movie that could be better than either of these two movies. <laughs> either of these two movies. They should have just been like, The Counterfeiters is also an animated movie. Yeah. Whatever. Um, no, it's, it's, it's something that on, on rewatch works. It, it doesn't fail in any way. So here's my question, Mario. Last week we talked about the witches and we talked about Borat, which is like a non thing, but we liked it. But it's not like a it's not like a movie. Yeah, like we also talked about Halloween, which is a non thing. No, 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 no. But I'm talking Borat, about I'm Borat. talking about 2020 movies. Is it possible that 2020 was just going to be a bad year for movies? I, I think so. Um, that's kind of the like because the stuff that's being withheld from us is a James Bond movie. Which could have been fine. I mean, I'm rewatching True Detective for like the 15th time. Kara Fuganaga might have made the shit out of it. I mean, it really it. depends. What do we call 2020 movies? No, I'm saying like... do What, what do we call 2020 but movies? Movies that were going to come out in 2020. So like, not films released in 2019 for the Academy in 2019. Right. That became 2020 movies. Right. I'm saying like... Because... I'm saying... I vividly right. <laughs> disagree. I'm saying like... The stuff that the stuff that has been pushed away into into the ether, basically. Mm. Like, do we really think the French Dispatch and Dune were going to save this year? Because Black Widow wasn't, the Eternals wasn't going to do it. Judas and the Black Messiah, I have hope for. But we have again, we have we have hope for that. That might have come out in early June for us anyway. That might have been a nineteen seventeen style movie. Um, or you mean like um, think um. Sorry, the bother you style movie? No, I mean like in in the sense that like it came out, it comes out at the end of December. It comes out at the beginning of December. Oh, you said very early, limited. You said, you said early June. So that's why it's going to be. Oh, I meant I meant January. Okay, it comes out in like the beginning of December in very limited release, and then comes out for us in like the beginning of January. Yeah, nothing. Nothing. These movies stink. Like twenty twenty. I have my list of twenty twenty movies of that I really like is like five movies long. And every new movie that comes out, I'm just like, oh, okay, like, fine. Like, this movie's no good. Like, The Witches was going to come out. The Witches and On the Rocks were going to come out in the theaters. I think, right? I think On the Rocks was... Was On the Rocks destined Apple for Apple? Because I think A24 has been, like, doing this Apple TV. But stuff. Trial of the Chicago 7 and was Witches were going to come out in theaters. theaters. Yeah. I wouldn't have sat through Witches in theaters. No, I, we would have skipped Witches in theaters. Right. And we would have seen Trials Chicago 7 in theaters. Sure, And absolutely. we would have been unhappy. And we would have been unhappy, but maybe it would have been the same thing. But, like, maybe this is just a bad year. Is that possible? It's possible. What, what, what's been pushed way back that I, we could have, like, Candyman, I think, could have surprised us. What's the name of the Carrie Mulligan movie? Oh, Promising Young Woman. Promising Young Woman. I probably would, I'm probably going to like that. That's, that's still Christmas. Um... Ma, uh, Ma Rainey's. Ma Ra- yeah, is, but that, that was always going to be Netflix. It's always going to be Netflix, right. Uh, to Five Bloods is always going to be Netflix. Right. So, like, I is does She Dies Tomorrow even make it to a theater, or am I just watching that on streaming anyway? I think that goes Netflix if uh, it been a full year. So, I mean... I'm like, at, this, I'm this is think, what I'm, I'm talking about. I'm trying to think of, like, what got pushed, what got pushed back so far. And this is where you... 
can cut stuff because this no, is no, 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 no. Yeah, just leave it in. Oh man. Um, okay. So for considerable movies that would have played a big role for us, so Candyman delayed to next August, Dune to next October. Yep. Oh god. Um, French Dispatch was never going to make any sort of waves. Um, Juice and the Black Messiah from August. 2021 Jillionaire still is getting released I don't think Last Night in Soho would have done anything uh god yeah no I don't I mean there's a sense that like the stuff like the festival things like Minari Nomadland One Night in Miami are all coming out I mean One Night in Miami is going to be an Amazon movie right Nomadland still getting a VOD release The Sound of Metal is an Amazon movie yeah, no, I don't think anything. I don't think anything. Oh, we got Charm City Kings. We haven't watched that yet. That came yeah. out on the eighth. I mean, there's some indie stuff. There's the forty year old version that I kind of want to. I, I want to dip into. Um, that's on Netflix. It's a Netflix movie. Um, there's some things, but I just think it's it's and the stuff know. that's still coming out. So we got Promising Young Woman, One Night in Miami, News of the World, Soul. But I uh, refuse. Rainies. Yeah, News of the World. There's no way News of the World is any good. Yeah, Nomadland, which is listed for December now. Oh, I keep forgetting that's December. Um, Hillbilly Elegy is not going to be a movie. Sound of Metal. It's not going to be the Mank. It's not going to be a. I mean, one movie on my list will play a. <laughs> but we're so. But what my point is more that like, we keep. <sighs> I don't think we lost a lot. I don't think so either, and we keep. The conversation has been very much, the idea that like this is the new, this is the new way, to quote the Mandalorian. This is the way. Three days. Yeah, I know. I'm very excited. Yeah. Me and my little guy are very excited. I'm very excited. Um, I wish they released it all at once, though. I know. Just... But it'll, it'll be fun to kind of do an every Friday I thing. Know. Like, But I think we thought that this is going to be like a new model for watching films. But most like the witches, the re- I think the reason you sell the witches to HBO Max because it's fucking garbage. But what's interesting about this is, I guess to end this, is like how good must... MGM feel in the new Bond movie must be amazing that they walked away from $600 million here's the thing the rumor of $600 million unless they're insane which is equally possible unless the Broccoli family is fucking nuts which is I think just as possible as that the movie is amazing well I just have I always have faith in, in Carrie Fabinola uh, me too um, but I think it's either one or the others I think it's either a, it's, it's, it's either a, a it's great movie. Number, it's also an odd number. Or it uh, sucks it's an odd ass. numbered uh, Daniel Craig Bond movie. It's the fifth one. Yeah, yeah. And the one and three were the good ones. And two and four were the bad ones. Couldn't even get through Spectre. Spectre is garbage. Spectre, I think, was. Did you even watch? You don't watch any of those. Movies, I watched right? Spectre. Yeah. Well, I didn't think you. I watched like, it to I do Skyfall. You, I don't think you. Oh, okay. I didn't, think I, I didn't watch Quantum of Solace, if that's what you're saying. You missed nothing. 
I watched Casino Royale, um, and then turned it off when the Komodo dragons came in, because I don't do that. Or the uh, Gila monsters, or whatever they are. The thing he jumped, those huge lizards he jumps on. That's Skyfall. That's not Skyfall. That's no the the, the Japanese casino scene. That's not Chinese. Skyfall. That's the Skyfall. I don't think so. I think that's Casino Royale. Because there's an entire sequence when he goes into the the. Yeah, that's Skyfall. I'm pretty, I thought that was Casino Royale. I'm 95. percent I mean, I've I've drank some beers today, but I'm. I've also drank some beers. That's Skyfall. Like the Komodo dragon, like the the lizard sequence. I was pretty sure that was Casino Royale. Lizard Casino Skyfall. Yeah, that that's Skyfall. Is my it friend. Skyfall? Yeah. Did you, didn't see Casino Royale. Did you turn off Skyfall? <laughs> no, no, I watched all of Skyfall. Yeah, the Komodo dragons, because because like it's the entire sequence where he like goes in and you have the like the great Roger Deakins shot. I wouldn't argue of... that that shot's great. The, the the Deacon stuff that works here is the outside stuff. No, no, the shot of him going into the casino. It's dark. And is it dark? So it's outside, the shot you're describing it's outside. It has the the candles is surrounding. It dark. Yeah, it's, it's darker. Nah, I thought that shot was pretty. Those those shots are campy. I don't like him. I like him on a, on top of a train. I like him in the ruins. That's stuff I like. It still should have beat. What the fuck was that? Was that Gravity's year? No, I think that was Life of Pi year. It should definitely be Life of Pi. Life of Pi won multiple Oscars. One of them being cinematography. Are you okay with that? I'm not. No, you think I'm okay with that? Just asking. You think I'm okay with... Ang Lee getting any Oscars? That's right, Ang Lee. Um, Ice Storm, that's your one good movie. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon sucks ass. No, it doesn't. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is awesome. I hate that movie. Why do you hate it? It's great. Hulk was fine. Do you hate it now, or did you hate it then? I hated it then. Why did you hate it then? It just seemed hokey. We are officially an hour and a half into this podcast, and we that's are a, debating Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. That's a short, that's a short episode. It's hokey? It just felt hokey to me. I thought it was great. Like, the wire work didn't work or anything for me, and I felt, I yeah, no, it just, it just, it like, as a kid, it felt hoogie. I, I haven't ever gone back to it, anyway. so maybe I'd have a different opinion. But anyways, 2020 was going to be a bad year. I think that's what we're, I think that's what we were going There's for. just going to be I think be the more women, that this weird. This, this women, like, women directors are good. It's going to be, like, a bunch of women directors and Charlie Kaufman right now for my best director. Oh, yeah, me too. It's going to be Charlie Kaufman just being like, hi, guys, it's me, Charlie Kaufman. I know. Surrounded by a bunch of women. I'm not winning this category because one person's winning everything on Mario's board list. <laughs> See you later. Not best actress, though, but everything else. Huh. Huh. Charlie Kaufman got that one you got so that far. One. Just spoil, I, spoiling the I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not looking forward to these Oscars because I, I think – the, I think the big picture on the ringer, their podcast, their their thinking is that like they may be more inclined to get it right this year because the movies are so like small. Bad. No, but they're just kind of like there's not a lot of there's not a lot of push towards one. There's not a Renee Zellweger push this year. You know what I mean? But I'm actually less inclined to feel like they're going to get it right. Yeah, but you know what's going to happen? Is Delroy? I'm. You're, are you looking up odds right no, now? No, no, no. You know what's going to happen? Sydney Flanagan's not even going to be in Best Actress competition. And no. that's bullshit. Of course not. 
Like, but I actually, no movies came out this year. But I'm going to be honest with you, I don't think Jesse Buckley will either. I don't think either, yeah. Who's going to... It's going to be some dumb fuck choice. <laughs> that was good. Good save. Um... What, what save is there? It's gonna be a, it's gonna be a stupid choice. I saw some consonants forming on your mouth. Oh no 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 no! Actually, <laughs> never never never. It was never. But I think funny. I think Jesse Buckley is the only actual person that makes sense here, as of this second of recording, and I think she won't even be nominated. Which blows my mind. And, well, Which is insane. Sydney Flanagan should be nominated. Sure, but she won't be. No. What they what the Oscars should do this year is just step back. You know, we won't even ask for any money. For our museum. Tom Hanks isn't gonna come out and we want, pitch our we museum. Want, we want an interview with Lawrence Kasdan. That's all we're asking for. What's what's he doing? Yeah, we want one interview with Lawrence Kasdan and we'll do the Oscars this year for you guys. We'll do it. We will one hundred percent do the Oscars. We're gonna do a great job. We won't host them. We'll just choose the winners for you. I'm ready. Are you ready? Yeah, I'll do it. I'm super ready. I'm so ready. I will, I will obey your rule of 2020 films, so I will step aside with all the choice, my choices. We'll wipe that slate clean under protest, but I'll do it, and we'll just pick the Oscars for you. The winner of Best You're Actor welcome. is Matthew McConaughey in True Detective Season 1. <laughs> I watched that this year. He's like, I did it. Congratulations, Matthew McConaughey. He does say that he won his Oscar because of True Detective Season 1. I'm going to be honest with you. So I watched Dallas Buyers Club recently. I think he... And I looked... You know what? He's very good in that. He's very... You know what makes that movie not great? Jared Leto. But here's the thing with the... So I have this feeling about Joaquin Phoenix now with Joker. I'm pretty okay with Joaquin Phoenix winning an Oscar for Joker. Not for Joker. But for everything else. For just everything else. Jared Leto is so good in Requiem for a Dream that it's not... Man, hot take, Lord of War. I I actually don't remember Lord of War. I definitely saw it. But I don't remember it. Was he good in it? Was he really good in it? He wasn't really good, but I just... I'm okay with him winning an Oscar. For, like, whatever. I'm okay with him winning an Oscar because of how much he put his body through. Yeah, like he's just... Anybody that almost killed himself for a shitty um, Mark David Chapman movie? Oh my god, that movie is so bad. Chapter 27 is so bad. Mm. Oh my god, that movie is awful. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of... I'm in this way with Oscars now. Because I watched um, You Were Never Really Here recently. Because I, I read the book again. And it's a good book. Oh, the whole thing is good. The whole experience is good. The He's, books, it's such a good adaptation, too, because they're both so, like... They're svelte. different. They're so svelte, Like, though. the book is, like, 93 pages or something yeah. like that. It's awesome. But he's so good in, in that movie. He's so good in, like, The Master. Like, just give him an Oscar for something. And if it has to be The Joker... Like, it's one of those things where The Joker won two Oscars. Like, I'm okay with her winning an Oscar. Yeah, I'm okay with him winning an Oscar. Like, they're going to win it for other stuff. I wish Johan Johansson would have an opportunity to win an Oscar, like, posthumously. I wish... You know what they should do? Every year, there should be an Oscar where everyone votes on it. And they're just like, this is the fucked up Oscar. Or it's just like, we fucked up. We should have given this an Oscar. Yep. 
And it's just everybody competing against each other. Well, it's the thing. So like, it's Phil like of, Ellen Burstyn, like uh, you know, just been like refucked up. But Ellen Burstyn, your Oscar. Ellen Burstyn has an Oscar, which I think is one of the things that like went against her in two thousand. So it was two thousand one. Um, because I didn't, I don't think that the the Academy felt compelled to give her one. This is not an Alan Arkin winning for best a uh, best supporting actor for, you know. Why Little Miss Sunshine. Com- why they feel compelled to give Julia Roberts an Oscar? Because she's Julia fucking Roberts. Oh, that meant something 19 years ago. Yeah. Get fucked, Julia Roberts. You mean nothing anymore. It's out. You're out. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I think people felt... I'm sure you're fine. I, I just think dislike you. I think people felt that way about Denzel for Training Day. But in hindsight, Training Day is fucking amazing. And he deserved it. He's unbelievable. Like even, people, even people are like, we probably should have given to Ethan Hawke, too. Right, exactly. We should have given Training Day like all the awards because Training Day is fucking great. Anton Foucault is never going to make a movie nearly as good as that again. Right, exactly. There is a line in Training Day that lives with, in my head forever. It's when uh, he was in all of those movie, those 1996 action movies. What's his name? What's who's his gonna, name? Who's gonna, win this? who's gonna win this? Who's gonna win this race? Cliff Curtis? No. No. Uh, Peter Green? No. Not Scott Glenn. Tom Berenger? Nope, not Tom Berenger. But he was in Sniper. Noel uh, Giuliani? Uh, all right, I'm going to look it up. Oh, man. Not Billy Zane. Are we sure it's not Noel Giuliani? He's not Sniper. He was also in The Rock. Sniper. Rock. Training Day. Not Rex Lynn. Raymond Cruz? Raymond Cruz. Remember when Raymond Cruz was like... Oh, right, he's right. Like, he I was, got Tuco. Tuco from Breaking Bad. Yeah. When he's like, I got Tuper in Training Day. Remember that? When he's in the fucking, when Ethan Hawke's in the bathtub and they're playing poker and he like gets right. dumped in that house. He's like, I got Tuper. Was he in Sniper? Yeah, he was in Sniper. He was one of the guys, wasn't he? No, what's, oh, uh, what's the other Tom Berenger? The Substitute. He was in the substitute. He was in the he was substitute. In broken, but he was also in broken, broken arrow, arrow, the rock substitute, and under siege. So a different, a different. Um, yeah, I was like, I don't remember him, and he was also in havoc. Yeah, Raymond Cruz. Sorry, a different Tom Berenger vehicle. Anyway, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was in havoc. Oh my god, Mario, this is the perfect, this is the perfect reenactment of. You and me going to Archie's and having some beers. Or this, this is a side. This is a side street episode. <laughs> that goes JP's out of here. Remember Havoc? I do remember Havoc. Yeah, good Havoc. Anyway, if you want to talk about 2005, oh my God, that, the director's not even listening to this. Barbara Copel, what, what, what have you done? Oh, Harlan County, USA. Did you direct that? She did direct Harlan County, USA. Wow. Good job, Barbara Copel. What? Why'd you do Havoc? Uh, if you want to talk about Havoc... Havoc seemed like a good idea at the time. You can uh, tweet us, at Film Pivotal. 
Or you can go to Pivotal Film. Uh, you can email us at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and see a list of the movies on our list or the beers that we drank. Um, Stephen Gagon wrote Havoc? Uh, yes, he did. The guy that wrote Traffic wrote Havoc. I don't think Traffic's a very good movie. It's not, but it's just like... the um, He would go on the right Syriana. And Mario. then and then he would take he would write some movie called Gold. That's McConaughey, no, isn't it? Yeah, and then he would write Doolittle. <sighs> Doolittle is fucking awful. He would also um, direct Doolittle. He didn't write Gold actually. He he directed Gold, didn't write it, but he would direct Doolittle. I am um, this podcast served perfectly, um, folks. We are now five days post election when this is happening yeah i didn't think about the election once while we were recording this because i was thinking about how much i hate myself <laughs> so it worked perfectly and then thinking about movies and drinking beers um i hope you were all able to find a way to disconnect from the fucking chaos that our country has become and it makes me sad um and maybe we could t- maybe if this everything goes well you and me will get together with JP at some point this week and we'll kind of we'll bookend this conversation with like a, a, a nonsense a positive one you know what I mean where we talk about it'll a, be nonsense but right. positive we talk about a movie and we kind of rehash what has just happened but um, as of right now we don't know what's going to happen and we hope it turns out not in, not in our favor I don't care about myself I don't think you care about yourself we, that it turns out in uh I care about myself. This it turns out in the favor of this country. Even, even the people who don't, I mean, they don't listen to this podcast because if they do, go fuck yourself and vote the right way. But it turns out in the favor of even the people who don't vote in their favor. Well, I'm going to tell you a little quick story. Uh, me and my family went to Florida at the end of February, beginning of March. We drove down to Florida. This is pre like, so if you go by the Borat movie, the country just assumed that. COVID was not going to happen yeah. here, and if it did happen here, it would happen limitedly, and we'd get control of it, blah, blah, blah. Went to Florida, uh, Disney World Universal. You know, we did all the shit. We all kind of assume that we were exposed, or it doesn't matter. Um, went to the Lincoln Memorial at one point in the end of February. So I think the last day of February, we went to the Lincoln Memorial. One of the things that I think people don't realize that Donald Trump has done to the country is he has fucking destroyed the Parks Department or the ability for the Parks Department to... The national parks of this country to fund themselves. Um, So Donald Trump at one point, you know, used the military to clear out space to walk across the street and do a photo op in front of a monument to, you know, with a Bible. If you go to the bathroom at that monument, the toilet paper in that bathroom is not on a roll or more accurately it is not on like an apparatus to hold toilet paper like one of those plastic containers with which toilet paper comes out there's a thing because these parks these government institutions have no money the toilet paper is held on in at the lincoln memorial one of the iconic establishments of this motherfucking country is tied to the handicapped rail with a plastic bag because the toilet paper thing got broken 
And so they just tied a roll to it with a bag. This is our. This is a minor thing. It's a little thing, but is it indicative of everything else that is happening in and this goddamn fucking country? Here's the big thing: the entire population of Buffalo has died this year because of the handling right. of the COVID nineteen. But that's what I'm saying. It goes from the little thing, vote the little thing, or vote the big thing. I hope that you did the right thing, and I hope you are able to. Uh, come to peace with whatever decision that you made. If it's the wrong one, if it's the right one, I suppose that's up to you. I, I, I guess I can't say. I guess I'm trying to still be kind of pragmatic here and, 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 and let people believe what they want to believe. If you if you experienced something horrible in your life and that made you if you voted, made the strong man... If you voted poorly, by the way, by February, the population of Miami will be gone. So just... To, live with that fuck you I don't care just realize that uh right fuck you but if you need a break you should watch because you listen to our podcast and you're probably <sighs> yeah you're probably on the good side because you've tuned out a long time ago if you're on the other side watch a movie whatever movie you can that will distract you drink a beer and uh we'll talk to you eventually we'll talk to you We'll talk to you at some point. Thanks a lot.